Hey folks, this is Michael Taylor with Smells Like Giving It Sadness podcast. Welcome for joining us once again. While we normally cover the musical side of pop culture, we also like to delve into film in our Smells Like Cinematic Sadness podcast. And this week I felt it was appropriate to do an episode dedicated to the late film director William Freakin, who passed away earlier this week. He is a very iconic filmmaker, from mostly known from the 1970s. And uh, we're going to discuss his work. I'm here with film critic Jack Summersby, who has works for the website Screen Sensibility and as a former critic for eCritic.com. Uh, Jack, how are you doing today? Oh, okay. We're both here in Texas, broiling in the uh, broiling in the heat, but we're Texans, so we can take it. That's right. And Jack and I are old friends. We are college friends. We did some media communication stuff back in the day at Texas Wesleyan College and at University of North Texas. So uh, we have our roots in pop culture, and we're both big freaking fans. And uh, we were talking about this a while ago, but I realized I had the wrong microphone set up. So let's recap. When we talk about William Freakin, what's the first thing that comes to mind to you? What what do you what's like your your strongest you think cinematic footprint that that he left for you? Oh, definitely. Like you know, I said the French Connection. It's uh, I mean, ve- I mean, very few Best Picture Oscar winners I agree with. I mean, the, very rarely do I agree. But the French Connection is one of the rare ones I agree with. And these days, there's no way a picture like that would win Best Picture. The Academy is just too stuffy to you know to even nominate a film like that. I think the last time an action movie, crime action movie, got nominated was the fugitive back in 1993 was it that or was it i think this is the i can't talk the departed was that nominated for i think that uh, i wouldn't call the departed an action movie i mean it was a mob movie but i wouldn't call it action i'm talking about you know action set pieces yeah just Departed be- was mostly a mob movie that's true yeah so definitely for like a thriller thing um and yeah, he just he 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 just you think of seventies and you think of grit uh, gritty seventies films, and that's what I think of when I think of freaking. I remember my dad would always try to turn me on to certain films that, that he liked growing up, and and he's always like the French Connection. It's the French Connection. I I heard that so many times, and then one day, way before cable, when we had to watch, you know, we had like three channels plus PBS to watch stuff. It was on like the the uh, ABC afternoon movie or something like that. And so we watched it together. And when I first saw it, I kind of, kind of went over my head. Cause I think I was only like, I don't know, eight or nine years old. Oh yeah. Yeah. When that's I, too young to absorb at all. When I, when I first saw it, so it took me a while to appreciate it, but then I really grew to love it. I mean, Gene Hackman, possibly his best performance, at least one of his best performances. Um, and it had, the insane car chase always gets talked about where he's chasing uh, on a, you know, chasing a subway train. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, what I had always stuck with me was watching a special feature on the DVD about the film where he were freaking talked about how he shot. So many of his action scenes were, were just shot on the fly. Like he didn't get permits for the city. He didn't get like the proper, you know, precautions to take. He would just get a stunt man in a car drive, 60 miles an hour on like, you know, like a residential street and is barely dodging pedestrians. It was, it was insanity. I mean, <laughs> he, he could have killed somebody or seriously hurt somebody. He could have killed himself, but he was so self-possessed and so, uh, so single-minded that that's just the only thing he could think of was the next shot. And he said today, of course, I'd be out of my mind and, and it would never be allowed to happen. And, oh, God, no. and, uh, you know, you have to, you know, while there's definitely you have to err on the side of caution and want people to be safe on film sets, there's also something undeniably thrilling about somebody willing to just to say, fuck it, we're going to go for it and see what we get. And and that's definitely what happened with, with uh, the French Connection. Um, you know, and of course, the other film that he's known for is largely, probably even more than French Connection, is The Exorcist, which is, you know, one of the most iconic horror films of all time when it came out people were like supposedly were like throwing up in the aisles and and uh it just (laughs) it just caused like a really like a like a stab in the in the the cinematic psyche as far as people just getting really freaked out by this movie and i think what makes his films to me so interesting is he used to be a documentary filmmaker 
So his films felt very real. They felt very candid shots of like, you know, an, an American cop or an American daughter and and uh, mother who just had these mm-hmm. crazy things happen to him. But it feels so much more terrifying because the rest of it feels so real. Yeah, I think the uh, the uh, after '73, the next time audiences were truly shocked, you're talking about throwing up in the theater, was the chestburster scene in Alien. Yeah. I don't, I think, I don't think a scene or anything like that happened until Alien. What six years later? No, I'm sorry. Yeah, six years later. Yeah, yeah, six years later. And freaking, by the way, on um, uh, French Connection, he did win Best Director. Hackman won Best Director and won Best Editing and uh, Exorcist was nominated for Best Picture. He was nominated for Director again. Uh, they didn't win, but they both won the Golden Globe for Best Picture and Best Director. So yeah, the uh, and uh, oh yeah, like I, was, I told you, the uh, I did research and yeah, adjusted for inflation, The Exorcist is the highest grossing movie Warner Brothers has ever put out and the highest grossing R-rated movie ever released, adjusted for inflation. And I mean, how many times has it been copied? How many sequels have they made? How many times have they made? And they still make Exorcist movies to this day for other non-related films that that try to tap into that. What made that? Nobody can do it. Nobody can come close. It's impossible. You just can't. You can't get that shock factor. You can't get that freshness that he got because nothing like that had been done before. um, You know, at at the time, and uh, it also kind of just shows you. You know, speaking of Alien and freaking, and I mean, how the seventies was just such a amazing decade for for filmmaking and freaking was you know one of the the pioneers i think for for that that brand of cinema that came out which was marrying the fantastical with with the mundane basically and uh i i think what happened to freaking was that he was so successful with his first couple of those first two films not the first two films he made but the, but you know first films that got notoriety that after that he, he never quite managed to uh hit those heights again uh box office wise or critical acclaim wise and i'm not entirely sure why but one film that we have to discuss is sorcerer which was his remake of what's the name of that the uh, the The wages of fear yeah the wages of fear and he it was a french film from the 60s i believe that he remade and when it came out right around the time that star wars came out and for some reason, they chose a film title that has nothing to do with the plot. No. I still don't know why they call it that. I think that was a huge part of the, of the reason that it flopped was because people were expecting like some kind of Sword of Sorcery movie. And it was not, nothing about that. But Sorcery... Yeah, I, I rewatched it yesterday. Oh, did you? What do you think about it? Yeah, I... I was stuck with a I was stuck with a full frame DVD, but here's uh, uh, the freaking I I knew this was true, and I checked it anyway because I don't like to I like to make sure what I say is true. Uh, he is only I was going to say it's not that bad of an experience because he didn't shoot in widescreen, and over the 18 films that he did, freaking only shot in the 2.35 to one aspect ratio one time in his whole career, and it was the Gulf War action movie uh, Rules of Engagement with Tommy. Lee Jones and Samuel Jackson. So if you're stuck with a non-letterbox DVD, you're not going to really – it's not going to suffer that much. The thing that gets me about Sorcerer is just the level of tension that he's able to conjure about these about these, you know, ne'er-do-wells who have to transport this nitroglycerin across the, you know, South American jungle. It's just – the suspense he gets is remarkable. Um I think maybe there's been some criticism about the characterizations in the in the film being kind of flat. Maybe I'm not really sure. Um, I, I know that he's complained that he thought that Roy Scheider wasn't the best actor for the part, but I think Scheider was fine. Um, oh, I thought he was. I thought he was first rate. My problem with the characters is that they see my criticism on it is that uh, it takes almost a half an hour for these for the prologue introducing these four characters and all and these different locales. There's France, there's New Jersey, there's Paris. All this, and I was like, you know, this information could, could have been conveyed in maybe 
half the amount of time and we don't the trucks the trucks don't get rolling until the one hour mark now after when that when those when those trucks start rolling it's mesmerizing especially the bridge sequence which i heard i read took months to do and uh and I do love, even though it's depressing as heck, I like the ending. He goes through all this stuff. He, you know, he conquers all, and then you know, the end of the film, his his uh, enemies from New Jersey find him. Yeah, yeah, he goes through all that stuff, and then it's like they don't they don't spell out what's going to happen. But you can pretty much figure oh. out that, that it's oh, you know, he's going to get plugged. Yeah, they're going to kill him. There's no. They're not going to worry about the cops stopping them. And uh, oh, and there's the Tangerine Dream score. Yes, the score is amazing. And actually, I was going to tell you, I don't know if you're aware of this. Do you know that Tangerine Dream are touring this fall? No, I didn't. And they're going to do the song from Sorcerer and some other films that they're coming to Austin in September. I'm going to try to go see them. Um, I think it'd be cool to go because I saw John Carpenter a few years ago. So, and I've seen Goblin perform. So, seeing these. Acts do these like soundtracks live is really cool. So, uh, yeah, that that soundtrack is so revolutionary. I mean, there's so many films now who are trying to like capture that 80s, late 70s musical, you know, thing mm-hmm. that Tangerine Dream and John Carpenter and all those people did the minimal electronic thing. And Tangerine Dream was, you know, at the forefront. I mean, John Carpenter says that Tangerine Dream were a huge influence upon him. Um, so he, he he's acknowledged right. they're, they're dead. So, yeah, that was a very, very influential interesting score that really gave Sorcerer a different energy than a lot of films from that era had. And I, I Sorcerer may, it was 22 million for the budget. Now back then that was a lot of money and it only grossed 9 million. Yeah. So it was, it was a, a big flop. Uh, There was already rumors in that, you know, they were like, Oh, he's persona non grata. Like, you know, his star has fallen. And, Really, from that moment on, he never really had a huge hit ever again. Um, no, he didn't. He, no, just, he didn't. He, I, I researched it on Wikipedia. You're right. He never had anything like that again. So the next film of note that he did that that got a lot of notoriety, of course, is his infamous film Cruising, which came, oh. which came out in 1980. It was a, a killer of, of gay men. It was a serial killer. I believe it was based off a true story. Um, and it started Al Pacino and that movie, I mean, you, 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 get, you think about the environment now where any film or TV that comes across as know, homophobic or, or less than butter view on, you know, on LGBTQ stuff gets slaughtered by critics and, you know, these days. And of course now we're dealing with a lot of bigotry, like renewed bigotry towards LGBTQ stuff. So, um, you know, there's a lot of extra defensiveness. And, and I think, you know, in the 1980, of course, this was demonstrably worse. Uh, and so the gay community really came out and bashed the film. But I also feel like it's one of those things, too, where it's like, even though I understand the criticism, there, even now, it, it seems there's always this element of people criticizing a film without seeing it, which I think is a mistake. I think if you're going to condemn a film, you at least need to watch it so you know what it, you know, um, what. Like Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah, because because I saw Cruising. I don't know if I saw it as necessarily an anti-gay film, but it just it just was a very oddly structured film. Let's put it that way. It, uh, it's not anti-gay. See, I know a lot about Cruising because see, I read the novel it's based on. It was this 1970 pulp novel, and the the, the novel switched up each chapter, started uh, from the cop's point of view, and then switched to the killer's point of view. In the book, the killer is this uh, repressed homosexual who is met who is physically killing gays to metaphysically kill the gay man he fears is lurking in him and the cop who is assigned to the to be the decoy had a history in the military of harassing gays he was a racist and he harassed gays and he found during the process of the thing that he himself was gay and uh so the book was a really pop entertainment it it was it was really well but freaking who also he did the screenplay adaption it doesn't make a damn bit of sense it has it it, it, 
takes out a lot of the stuff that was in the novel. Uh, Prefian said he purposely had three different actors play the villain, three different people speaking the line, speaking the lines away would confuse the audience and throw them off. The problem is when the film ends, uh, you don't know. It just doesn't make any sense. You don't know who the hell, who who the killer was, or what was motivating him. And it's one of the worst photographed movies of all time. It looks like it was shot with a fifty watt bulb, especially in these dark S and M clubs, which are dark anyway. But yeah, you can hardly see the picture. And and also, you know, I guess because the air it came out with, or just nervousness under film execs, you know, they never. It's like they kind of imply that maybe Pacino's character is gay, but they really don't comment on it. They kind of leave it up in the air, if if I remember it right. It's like they don't really, they kind of hint at it, but but it's like it's 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 very non-committal. So you really forty minutes was supposedly cut out of it. I could I could see that because it it's very it's, yeah. Yeah, the pacing is just really weird and just really weird scenes like him getting slapped around by that guy in the chair like you're like what the hell no. yeah the black <clears throat> cop who's wearing this big black muscle cop who's wearing nothing but a jock strap it's like what what, what? Oh, where in the hell that came from i don't know but the, you're supposed to get the implication in the end that the pacino character is the one who has committed that last murder yeah that's the way it's supposed to come across because that's what was in the book but like i said they I can't name a time a studio cut recut a movie and it made it better. Yeah, I can't either. Um, it was just it's just a very very strange um, film, and, and we should we should note that that if you go to Wikipedia for cruising, you will see a quote from Jack discussing his opinion on the film, and you spare no. No animosity <laughs> toward, towards your opinion. No, I, yeah. <clears throat> I, I don't hold back. I mean, and I, to be fair, I did give it another look before I reviewed it because it had been a while. But yeah, and from cruising, oh my gosh, let me see. From cruising, uh, gee whiz, uh, <laughs> there I did that awful black comedy called Deal of the Century with Chevy Chase. Yeah, I was just looking at that right now. I was looking on um, online for all the films that he's done, and I yeah, ne- it, yeah, it failed because it was about the arms race, and there hasn't been a single black comedy about the arms race that has ever worked because the arms race isn't funny. Yeah, and what a weird cast too. It's like Chevy Chase, Gregory Hines, and Sigourney Weaver. It's just <sighs> n- not a combination. I would, I would have. No. Uh, yeah. And of course, what happened in that but? But then, what came out in 1985? Yes, to live and die in LA, which was, if it wasn't, I mean, it it was a decent size hit. I think. I mean, it made its budget back, right? It wasn't a flop. It um, it it cost 11 million, and it made about 15 at the box office. So I think it broke even at the most when you add in advertising costs and stuff like that. Uh, and and I, I am surprised it didn't do as much business. Uh, I don't know. I guess maybe word of mouth got around that the characters weren't all that pleasant. I mean, I, I don't know why it did do better. To Live and Die in L.A. is a very fascinating film. It's the first film that, well, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen To Live and Die in L.A., you're going to want to watch it before you listen to the rest of this. Um, but prior to live, to live and Die in L.A., really the only film that you would ever seen a protagonist get killed was in Psycho. Um, uh-huh. uh, but To Live and Die in LA was, was really uh, a, one of the very few films where the main protagonist gets off you know, halfway through the film. And uh, it's notable, the film is notable for, for lots of reasons. One is one of the first films that, that gave, uh, I think it's, it's the second film Willem Dafoe ever made. Uh, the first one he made was Loveless with uh, Catherine Bigelow, right? Uh, I yeah, but he also played the villain in Streets of Fire, which came out in '84. Okay, so this is one of his earlier earliest films, and it's it's, yeah. it's one where he got a lot of notoriety because he really was just so menacing in it. And in the lead, you had uh, William Peterson, who would go on to be in another underrated '80s film, Manhunter, playing Will Grammer from uh, Thomas Harris's book Red Dragon, and would also go on to be the lead character and producer of CSI. Um, but this was on his first, this was his first film. Cause he'd been doing a lot of stage, stage work. Yeah. 
first st- yep first movie role well i mean tactically it was his first tactically his first movie role was as the bartender in michael mann's thief who, who try he tries to throw james Conn out but you're right yeah in fact peterson said in a recent interview if it hadn't been for freaking i'd still be doing plays uh, uh i'd still be doing i'd still be doing plays in second-rate theaters yeah, and it's a it's a weird film because it's like you've got Secret Service agents and a counterfeiter and just it's kind of a unusual – usually you have like cops and robbers that are, are more kind of uh, traditional. This had, had kind of different interesting divisions that were going after each other, but it had you know very frantic action scenes, an amazing car chase going down the wrong side of the, of the LA freeway, which was super cool and still looks dangerous as hell when you watch it now. Um, and it had a great soundtrack by Wang Chung, who uh, freaking had heard, you know, doing dance hall days, you know, back in their early albums. And he, and while they would go on to make their horrific "Everybody Wang Chung Tonight," which I still wish never happened, they made this really great soundtrack for this film that was, you know, very kind of experimental and really added a lot to it. But it just, it was an interesting film. When I first saw it, I didn't know quite what to think about it because I was so shocked by William Pearson getting killed that it just, it really kind of pulled a rug out in front of me. I was like, mm-hmm. I just was not expecting that. And I'm, and we, I read the article that you mentioned as well. You, you sent it, sent it to me, but talking about how, you know, the uh, studio execs were like, no, no, do not do this. Do not do this. And so freaking said, okay, I'll give you an alternate ending. And he did it like in the worst possible way so that they had to use it, the version he wanted to, mm-hmm. to use. But certainly that probably did play into it, not doing as well as if it had a traditional hero who, who didn't get killed and had more of a triumphant ending. Whereas it is, it had just kind of a, a uh, very uh, melancholy, just kind of seedy ending. The whole film has got a very seedy underbelly quality that really, you know, kind of taps into that, that uh, just the way that that William uh, Peterson, I mean, when uh, William Freakin' just does crime dramas, he just has a really a real knack for tacking into that underbelly, making you feel like you're really like in that world, and makes it really mm-hmm. menacing. Well, it's a very gritty picture. In fact, uh, the cinematographer was the German Robbie Mueller, and this was his first action movie. And the year before, if you you know, he freaking made to live in the L.A. look extremely gritty. Remember, we talked about some of those movies where you feel you need a shower afterwards because you can just feel the smog and the pollution. There's no blinding blue skies and sunshine. And Mueller, the year before, had photographed Repo Man, which also took place in L.A. and which also had a real pollution kind of look to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you really could see the smog from L.A. just like like clinging to the celluloid when you watch that, it really feels like you're like you're in LA. Um, it, uh, I just wish he would done that. I wish he would tied it. See, this was adapted from a novel. I did read the novel, believe it or not, that the cop in the novel is actually more of a SOB than the one in the film, which is saying something. But I just wish he'd ironed out some things in the movie. Like to this day, I still don't know why Willem Dafoe's character goes through with the exchange when he knows they're cops it makes no sense because remember he says why don't you take the uh why before he uh you know uh after William Pearson's killed him he says the foe says the other guy why don't you take the why didn't you take the deal Grimes offered you so either Grimes told him or he had his office bug but he knew they were cops and to this day I don't know why he went through with the damn exchange it doesn't make any sense and there's that one really weird line too, where uh, he shoots, he does something to somebody um, over. It's like a piece of art, or what? Or is that what it was? Where he gets somebody gets shot, shooting him in the nuts. Yeah, and he goes, "Your piece of art is in your ass," or something weird like that. Is that, is that the line? Am I? Yeah, yeah. Your taste. He says, "18th century Cameroon, which is an African piece of art." He says, "Your taste is in your ass." And uh, <laughs> well, that's the other thing about that goddamn scene. He walks in there and says, "Did you know your house is under surveillance? How did how, how did the Wilm the folk character know but know it's under surveillance?" And uh, it, it's just, I, I just William he co-wrote the screenplay with the author of his novel. I just wish he tied some of this stuff up because you 
you've really got to sit there and go, well, wow, how do they make these leaps of logic? But like I said, the film is so entertaining, and it just moves like a freight train. Credit Bud Smith's awesome editing, too. And it's got, you just don't, you don't really hold it against it because it's so entertaining. And it he followed that film up with a film that's even less regarded, but I think is a really interesting film, Rampage, uh, which came out in 1987. And no, uh, you're close. It was supposed to come now. If you go to IMDb, they have it listed as 1987. Here's the problem D- Dino De Laurentiis' DEG Studios was based on North Carolina. They did Blue Velvet. Well, the problem is Dino Laurentiis produced a bunch of crappy pictures, even the collision course. Remember the Pavarita uh, Jay? Uh, well, anyway, anyway, uh, I w- remember Music Land, that story used by music. Mm hmm. Music, okay. I in '87, I always look at the soundtracks, and there was yep. a soundtrack there for Rampage by Ennio Morricone, and it had this awesome freaking cover. What happened was the studio went bankrupt before they could release it, so the soundtrack came out in '87, but it did not get released in the theaters here in the U.S. until 1992. Miramax picked it up, and they. Re- sporadically release it. Now, I saw it opening day, so you'll see it credited as a 1987 film, and I do think it played overseas in a few, but here in the U.S., it didn't get released till 1992, and uh, I think Freak, uh, someone told me he... during the time he recut the film, he added a couple of things. Uh, he kind of changed his... The original version was probably... Uh, he was against the death penalty, and he's, it, it, the film is still that, but it's a little bit more modern, but it's still a disturbing picture. How about that killer? Yeah, yeah. That, that was Alex Smith-Arthur that played him, who like previously was only really known, I think, for being in a Madonna video, but uh, he was he was really chilling as a killer, and of course, one of the, you know... The always underrated Michael Bean finally, you know, had a, a leading role that wasn't the typical thing he'd, he'd been known for so far. And uh, mm-hmm. it was an interesting mix of like serial killer thriller and courtroom drama. It was it was kind of like it was like he kind of cut it right down the middle. Like this part's gonna be the thriller part. And this part's gonna be the. Uh, I think that maybe is what threw some people off was the fact they were expecting it to be like a continual Science of the Lambs kind of a thing, where that was more kind of like the preamble. The rest of it was more of the legal stuff, but. It was still just an interesting film. It wasn't great. It wasn't like one of his best, but I do think it's a worth it's one worth watching. Well, he took a he took a novel. It was a nonfiction book, and he wrote the screenplay himself. And it's clearly a clenched fist protest against the insanity plea, but it's not really one sided. He kind of presents both sides to it. And I looked it up. The film grossed less than nine hundred thousand at the box office. Uh, Miramax was not a major studio back then, so they didn't release it to a whole lot of theaters. So it also suffered from, you know, a limited release. So it made, yeah, made less than 900000 And I don't, I never saw The Guardian. I know that was kind of hyped a lot when it came out because people were like, you know, from the director of The Exorcist, he's returning to horror for the first time since The Exorcist, and this is uh, going to be, and I never saw it. I never heard oh any, my, anything about you're it. lucky. It was about a killer tree. <laughs> they were sacrificing the this the villainess, the female villain, was sacrificing babies, people's babies. I I think she you know try she you know worked for these people and wound up sacrificing her babies to this killer, sacrificing these kids to a killer tree, and it was just. Oh, I can't remember. I saw it at the dollar here. I can't remember if I sat all the way through it or not. I think I walked out of it. <laughs> it was just, it was, I was like, what? Come on. I was like, freaking, can you tell me of all the scripts on your desk, this was the best one there was among them. I can't picture that. Yeah, he just, I don't know what it was. He never was able to, to really um, get a, get a foothold again, you know, the way that he did, because he did a few other films. And then another one that he did, that got really rolled by critics was, uh, 1995 was Jade written by the always polarizing Joe Esterhaus. And, uh, just, it was basically like a, you know, in the same band as Esterhaus, other stuff like, like fatal 
not like a basic instinct and things like that, but it got terrible reviews. I never watched that either. I heard nothing but terrible things about that as well. Um, Freakin only has himself to blame because Esterhouse, I know basic instinct is a great move, but he had a real talent for story construction. And when Freakin wanted to do it, he, Esterhouse made him promise, don't be messing around with the script. It's very all the stuff's in place. Don't mess with it. And then he freaking assured me when he wound up rewriting, rewriting the hell out of it. So, I mean, it's an entertaining picture. I, I like David Crusoe. It's the photography is wonderful. Wonderful. There's a couple of car chases, but what happens is it just ultimately, it makes no sense whatsoever. And freaking only got himself to blame for that. Yeah, he said later he shouldn't have changed anything. He said later, yeah, I should have left it alone. <laughs> it's like, well, I mean, I'm sorry, but, but it's just, uh, but it, it's not, it's not, I don't, it's a bad film, but I, I, I gladly watch it again just because it, it, it is pretty enjoyable. Yeah, it, it's, and, he, and, and some of his films do have that quality where it's like they're, you know, I don't know, brash or attacky or whatever, but they're still very watchable. Um, and I think that, that that's one of those, you know, it's probably become a guilty pleasure for a lot of people. Um, you know, and, and then we also have uh, in the 2000s, he kind of didn't really have like a research, but he did, he did get some more critical acclaim because, I mean, it put out films like Rules of Engagement and Hunted, which both didn't really move the needle one way or the other, but Bug, which came out in 2006, which is based off of a screenplay, that, I'm not screenplay, based off a stage play, that got a pretty good buzz um, from critics. It's a very disturbing picture. It's a very good film. It's, I mean, that's unpleasant to the nth degree, but it's a, it's a, it's a good kind of unpleasant because it's just, it's unforgettable. Uh, go back one thing before he hit the 2000s, there was Blue Chips that he did the year before, Jade, and that was a bat. It's still the bat best basketball movie ever made. It was written by Ron Shelton, who also wrote the best baseball movie, Bull Durham, and the best football movie, The Best of Times. And he, and it was Nick Nolte. He played that college coach, the very temperamental coach who uh, he was a coach of this of this university, and they kept having losing seasons because he refused to bribe. Uh, the college players that come to his college, so they were always getting beaten by other teams who had who were buying these players. And I looked it up, and it had a it flopped at the box office too. Now the budget was thirty five million, and it only made about twenty million. And I, I just I couldn't I looked at that and went, it's mostly a talking heads picture. All the basketball scenes take place in the same school, so they were shot in the same things. These weren't built on sound stage. And I understand how it made so much money, but uh, it did make a good statement on is it right for colleges to quote you know bribe athletes when these athletes bring in millions of dollars to the university? Yeah, yeah. I mean that's something that's that's still going on with that controversy. So um, it's interesting that he would that he would uh, tap into that and. And the basketball scenes are wonderfully – he shot some wonderful basketball scenes. I mean the, the staging, the editing, these are some of the best uh, basketball pictures I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, if you want to go to 2000, he also did yeah, – I, I wonder if he did this just so he could uh, do car chases again. He did that movie called The Hunted. And that was Benicia Del Toro and Tommy Lee Jones, right? That's right. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, it was basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those were a couple of car chases in there, and that they weren't very. <laughs> I mean, you watch it, and you're like, okay, freaking thought it was just trying to find an excuse to put some car chases in there because they, they completely didn't get along. And let me see, what was there? I think his his last. It's what was Killer Joe. Yes, which was also written by the by Tracy Letts, who also wrote Bug. So, so okay. both those were were two of the stronger latter day freaking ones. I mean, you could you could you could complain about both of them being kind of disjointed, um, but Bug is especially disturbing because <laughs> you're really seeing a mythical disintegration. And of course, this is one of Michael Shannon's first uh, first breakout roles, which really showed him as 
someone you know to watch. And of course, he's gone on to become a, a major, a major star. Uh, very peculiar, but I mean, he just he really does make you feel like someone is, is just losing their mind and then making everybody else question their their sanity. And uh, it's you know it's a it it does kind of it does kind of feel like a stage play adapted to a film, but it's done very effectively. You know, very minimal sets, um, very you know, minimalist, but it it it, it works. And yeah, it never seems cramped. It takes so he's totally in this motel room. And I've lived in motels for like months on end, so I know I have the feel. It. And yeah, the way freaking shot it, you never get that cramped sense. You know, it, it doesn't. A lot of films wouldn't come across very cinematic and freaking shot it in a way, especially with that lighting he used. He used that blue, that blue lighting a lot through blue color drills. And so it was a visually alive picture, being that you're right. It just takes place in this motel room. And Killer Joe is an interesting movie because that was really the beginning of Matthew McConaughey finally kind of breaking out of his romantic comedy roles and becoming a, a legitimate leading dramatic actor, you know, and, and things like that and true detective and, uh, and all that. So that was, that was a good showcase for his talents. And, uh, that really weird scene with him kind of humiliating Gina Garjan was so, so strange. Um, and, uh, and Thomas St. Church, Emil Hirsch, just, it was a, it's a, it was a, it was a, it was a really good cast for that film, not a film that I would say was amazing. And, and one I have trouble kind of remaining, uh, remembering super well, but I do know that it's got that, that Tracy Letts guy, who's also a really good actor, by the way. Um, he's been in several TV shows like Homeland and, and, uh, now, I didn't care for it. I, I watched it once. I didn't, I didn't much care for it. And just, I just didn't, Get in my bubble. Uh, no, there are two things he did uh, because of him passing away. I checked his filmography, and in 1975, there's a there's an interview. It's called Fritz Lang interviewed by William Friedkin. It's two and a half hours long. Uh, in the external review section, there's only two reviews. Each of them is in a foreign language, but I found it on YouTube, and it's great because Fritz Lang is my all time favorite director from Germany, and so. But then, yeah, it's two and a half hours long, and uh, like I said, nobody's ever seen it. And oh, oh, one other thing, remember, it's always interesting to see what films directors have turned down. Yes. I did a search on that, and with Freakin, I didn't find a whole lot. There were only two things I could find he turned down. He turned down MASH, that Robert Altman wound up doing. And now he turned down Star Wars. Okay, it, which is ironic, being that you know he blamed Star Wars for Sorcerer failing, but every major director had turned down Star Wars because they hated the script. That's why George Lucas wound up directing it because he couldn't find it. He couldn't find a major. He couldn't find a major director to do it because they hated the script. But that's the all. Those are the only two films I could find that he turned down. That is a great irony that he would turn down Star Wars, but both those make sense. I don't think either of those films would have played to his to his sensibilities. So I think he probably well, David Lynch was offered Return of the Jedi. I still wish he had done that just to see what he would have come up with. But again, I think he would have been a disastrous Lucas fit, fit would for have Star. Never allowed it. No, Lucas would have never allowed what he would have wanted. I mean, look what he did with Dune the year later. George Lucas would have hamstrung David Lynch, and David Lynch knew that. Yeah. That's why he turned it down. He said, I still wish Lynch had directed Red Dragon. He was offered that, and he dropped out because he thought it was too unpleasant. And it was like, well, look at his other films. Yeah. Like, Those aren't unpleasant. Yeah, he passed, you know? it, passed out of her Blue Velvet, which is twice as unpleasant as, as, as uh, Manhunter ever was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting, not just what he, uh, what he, what, what a director uh, accepts, but what they turned out. And I did do. I got to repeat that quote to you that I said earlier about The Exorcist. Bernard Herrmann, who of course scored Psycho, he's like I said, he went to uh, 
screened. He screened the Exorcist for her. Now I want a better uh, after it came out. I want a better score than you did for Citizen Kane. And he said, "Well, I'll then do, make a film better than Citizen Kane." Yeah, because because Herman didn't <laughs> Herman didn't didn't do the score for Exorcist, right? It was somebody else. I remember. I remember this. No, no, he did. No, he turned it down. I don't know who did it. I'm sure it, we would recognize the the uh, maybe Lalo. Sh- uh, no, someone we would recognize the. Uh, I'm on my cell phone with this, so I can't check it. But I'm no, looking. I'm look- did not do the screenplay for it. He just he apparently turned freaked out. He just apparently it wasn't his his cup of tea. I'm looking it up right now because I'm because I remember hearing it being like, oh my god, this music is so unpleasant. Because I mean, you have first you have the the one piece tubular bells, which is which is Mike Oldfield, which is that that that. Uh, Repeated motif that that you know some people think influenced John Carpenter with the Halloween theme, you know, the ding 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 ding, uh-huh. ding, you know. The, so that was that was primarily what was used. But at the very end of the film, it was Jack Nitsche had this like in square comes in, it's just like it was like so like abrasive and like what the hell is this? It was it was like some of the ugly uh-huh. ugliest pieces of music I've ever heard, and it's it's just safe for the end. But yeah, primarily it's it's that tubular bells. Um. Yeah. Uh, so did you find the name? Yeah, it is. It's a. Uh, let's see. I just had it. I think I just said it. It was. Uh, yeah. I know Owen Reisman did the cinematography. You also shot French Connection. It was Jack Jack uh, Nit Nit. I can't. Okay. Nitsy. Jack Nitsky. Okay. And yeah, yeah, he yeah. And it kind of felt like similar to the. I need to see who did the music of French Connection, but French Connection also had a similar kind of really dissonant, kind of unpleasant sounding music like it wasn't it was very ab- abrasive i remember uh french connection which is very ab- abrasive musically which kind of fit the whole the whole uh kind of hyperkinetic quality of the, of the film but uh i'm looking this up too i'm just curious who did the music for it and it was don ellis okay so okay. But uh, well, if you want to look, if you want to compare directorial styles, look at Frank. Have you had? Did you ever see Fritz Connection Two? I did. I liked it actually. Directed by John Frankenheimer. He had a cool little, drew, little boat yeah. boat chase at the end. Yeah, I thought that was. Uh, yeah. I thought yeah, that this, that was a, a worthy sequel. It wasn't as good as the first, but I liked that it was different. I like that it actually went to went to France and, and took took some chances with it. I think free, I think uh, Frankenheimer did a decent job for a sequel. Well, I like you were talking about the Exorcist, these bad ripoffs. I everyone hates Exorcist too. Uh, I think Pauline Kale is the only critic who even remotely like. Even she said the best enjoy it. You have to turn off the dialogue. But I'm still a fan of Exorcist three, which came out in 1990. I think Exorcist Three is has really become a cult film. It's one that that based on that one scene has become iconic in its own right because that one the scissors, the scissors is so terrifying <laughs> and so unexpected, and the film the film is just so relentlessly weird. It's just such a strange, strange uh, film. Like it feels. It, it it fits with the first film, but then again, it doesn't. But then again, it's its own thing. I think it's you know, in hindsight, it's one of those things that that uh, that you you wish for sequels where they had their own identity, and it really does have its own thing. And I think it's kind of found its audience over the years. Like it's definitely a cult classic now. If you watch any of those clip shows where they talk about the scariest film moments, it's almost always in there because of that <laughs> of, of that, of that <laughs> one scene. Because it is. I mean, I, I mean, I almost screamed in the theater when it. I almost screamed, and me and Robert were sobbing. I think I, I almost just screamed. It just, it was unnerving. Because I, I, I did see that the last two extras films. One directed by Paul Schrader, one by Rennie Harlan. It was basically the same film, but two different directors. I did too. And both of them were terrible. Um, yeah, they were. Paul Schrader's was slightly better, but not by a lot. It tried to be a psychological. It tried to be psychological. Like people don't want that from an exorcist film. They don't want psychological complexity. You know, they just want. And Rennie Harlan was the opposite. He made. They gave a hundred million. He made it. And I, it was just like. And now there's a new exorcist coming out. And it's like, why don't you just leave the damn thing alone? Yeah. The, no one cares about that stuff anymore. You know. 
but freaking, yeah, I, you know, today's, I wonder what today's filmmakers, people, people growing up and becoming directors, I mean, do they even know the importance of William Freakin? I bet you money, not one, I bet you maybe two film students out of a hundred would recognize the quote, did you ever pick your feet in Poughkeepsie? Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, I think it's, I think it's worth, worth uh, mentioning there's a really uh, for people who are curious about William Friedkin and don't know, want to know more about him, there's a documentary called Friedkin Uncut. I think it's currently streaming on Roku channel. It's streaming on Tubi, and it's streaming on uh, Canopy and Crackle and Pluto, Freebie, a bunch of different places for free. And so if you're interested in learning more about his uh, film career, I think I highly recommend this documentary. I saw it a couple years ago. It's really good. Um, so, so which film? If you had, if you were going to be on a deserted island for the rest of your life, and you could only have one film from each director, which freaking film would you rather have on the island? Now, I probably know what you're going to say. And let me just tell you: three days ago, after freak, I mean, after freaking night, Stephen King was asked what his favorite. Uh, freaking film was and you know this is the master of horror so you would think he would have said exorcist right Mm -hmm. he said sorcerer interesting he said sorcerer not the exorcist he said sorcerer I would say French Connection that's a tough one that's a real tough one because I mean I've seen the exorcist probably more than any of his films you know on repeat viewings I've seen The French Connection a bunch. I've seen Sorcerer not so many times. Maybe I picked Sorcerer just because I haven't seen it as many times, and I and I know I, I would like it. I just forget – I sometimes forget that it exists. So maybe if I had a chance to watch it every single day, I'd, I'd get more pre- appreciation for it. So I'll I'll go with Sorcerer just because that way it would be something that would – I get some new things out of it versus watching the same thing over again. But I should also add they're about to put out a 4K version of The Exorcist that's coming out in the next few months. Um, it's going to be a, a – a new uh, release. They've just, I saw a preview for it on my 4k TV. It looked really, really good. Uh, I was amazed how well the Blu-ray they made a few years ago looked from it. You know, 1970s films are so grainy and so diffuse, you know, there wasn't, yeah. there wasn't the crystal clear, but if you watch the exercise on Blu-ray, the, the clarity is, it's amazing. Like it, what about, do you have the Blu-ray for sorcerer? I do. Well, you hold on to it because I went and looked. And if you want a new copy from Amazon, you go right ahead because it's out of print and it's going to cost you a hundred bucks. Woof! Yeah, I I got mine. <laughs> so you hold on to that sucker. I think I got it like about four or five years ago. If I'm about what? I think I got it about four or five years ago. Okay, uh, Freaka did say when they were doing the Blu-ray that the colors had faded or something like that, but they, they supposedly got in there, and uh, the, the telesign operator apparently did a wonderful job of restoring the colors, and uh, Freakin's well, – the first connection, the Blu-ray had a bunch of controversy because uh, it was recolored time by – uh, freaking and all these purists who knew the movie decried it, decried the uh, uh, recolor timing. And then they, so there's two releases they got like kind of different color timing. So, but hold on to that rampage, held on to the Sorcerer Blu ray because it's a, it's, it's rare. And I bet you it's sell, I bet you there's a lot of bids on eBay ever since freaking passed away. Oh, I'm sure. And it's also worth mentioning that he has a he has a film that hasn't come out yet. He has one final film that's going to be released. Um, is, I, in, is that a theatrical? I saw it. Is that a, I saw the title. Is that a theatrical or is it a is it for TV? I'm looking here. It's it says it's called the Kane Mutiny Court Martial. It's going mm-hmm. to premiere in September at the 80th Venice International Film Festival, and it stars. Okay. Keeper Sutherland, Jason Clark, Jake Lacey, Monica Raymond, and Lance Reddick. And okay, so that that was a stage play. That was a stage play, I believe. Yeah, it says it's an upcoming American Liga drama film directed by William Freakin, the final film directed before his death, and it's based on the court martial scenes of the Herman Locke novel, The Cain Mutiny, which is adapted to the film okay. of the same name. Okay, okay. He did do the uh he did a do he did do a film version of Twelve Angry Men. Uh, Sidney Lamette directed the the first 
adaptation from the play in, I think, 60s. And Freakin did it uh, in the 2000s. Uh, he did it 12 Angry Men and Jack Lemmon. He brought back William Peterson. So this wouldn't be the first time he, uh, you know, he adapted, a, adapted something from a stage play. So that'll be, that'll be interesting to watch. Yeah. I don't, you know, September's not that far away, but I just wonder how wide of, I wonder if it's going to get a wide release or if it's going to mostly be stuck at art house theater. Well, it looks like the production company is Showtime and Paramount, so I'm assuming it'll probably be a, a straight-to-streaming deal on, on Showtime. Well, that would make sense because he was married to Sherry Lansing yeah. for uh, 30 years, and she's had, she was head of Paramount. Yeah, because I doubt, even with his notoriety of him passing away, I doubt that's a, a concept that would be a huge cinema draw anyway so i think streaming is, streaming is probably the you know it's probably the right avenue for it for a smaller stage kind of thing well the to live and die on a blu-ray looks looks uh the the new release the newly released one from kino looks wonder it also comes with a 4k disc but i haven't got a 4k player yet but i did watch the blu-ray which was struck from the 4k master and the transfer is uh Transfer is absolutely—it's just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I would like to see that. I would like to like to uh, check that out. I'm—I think his films are so interesting because they are like—they're not like what I would consider beautiful films in a lot of ways. They're, they're very harsh and. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, yeah, it's the most gorgeously shot film he did was Jade. Uh, if you get a chance, watch it. You'll see what I'm talking about. They he used the cinematographer of Speed, and it's just one that it's the most gorgeous film he ever made. It was shot on location in San Francisco, which is why I think the budget went up to 50 million and it grossed less than 10. But go and look at that. What you're saying is correct on this gritty thing. But if you want a gorgeous, gorgeous looking freaking movie, then that's definitely Jade. Yeah, yeah, he's. He was a very, very interesting filmmaker, and um, I think that uh, you know he's going to be known historically for for his you know highlights. But we definitely wanted to shed you know shed a lightness yeah. on his whole filmography today. I think we did a pretty good job of covering a pretty wide body of work. I know he also did a documentary a few years ago based off an exorcism, which didn't get that great reviews. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then he did a, a, a documentary that came out on Shudder not too long ago called Leap of Faith, which is about his creation of The Exorcist, which is kind of interesting just hearing his uh, musings on what he thinks about exorcisms and possessions. And and I think he kind of believes in it. I think he kind of thinks it's real. He seemed like he gave yeah. some, some credence to it. Like I thought he would be much more kind of cynical, and and I was surprised yeah. that he did kind of have a, more of a spiritual bent than I, than I, had, I had figured. So uh, well, let's hope let's hope Rampage uh, gets a, gets on home video. It's right now. Rampage has only been released on VHS. It has never been on. Not, it has not. Not only is it now Blu-ray, it's not even on DVD. Uh, let's hope that thing gets gets the disc one of these damn days. I mean, this is a by an important director, and I I, I don't know. Maybe it has to do with the. Uh, the uh, the rights problem because the studio went and Miramax picked it up, but I do remember the VHS was from Paramount Pictures, so that's a major studio. But just for the record, yeah, it has yet to be on disc, and I think it's the only Ram- William Freakin film that it, yeah that isn't on disc. It's uh, isn't in that crap. You see these crappy movies, man. They get the they get the DVD, they get the Blu-ray, they get the 4K. You get movies like that. They're not even on goddamn disc yet. It's just it's unforgivable. Yeah, it's amazing how many DEG films got screwed over, like Manhunter and and that, and just you know so many films that that you know have such appeal but yet they never got the the release or the exposure that they that they deserved um like you know daily rentis had a real knack for picking great filmmakers to work with but he had a terrible way of distributing the films it just you know it's amazing that blue velvet came out unscathed from all that because you figured a film like that would have definitely gotten lost in the shuffle but somehow it managed to to break out supposedly dill rentis 
opened his DEG studios to get Blue Velvet released because while he financed it, he couldn't find any studio to pick it up. So he basically opened DEG studios and uh, it was uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. He constructed some sound stages there. So because of Blue Velvet, DEG pictures, uh, you know, existed. It doesn't exist anymore, but oh, and of course they put out one of our favorite guilty pleasures, Raw Deal. Oh, that's right, they did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's hoping. Uh, let's let's hey, let's hope for a. My gosh, we don't even have a blue. We don't have a U.S. version of of Raw Deal. We still don't have one on Blu-ray. We don't have one. Uh, there's a region-free one, but anyway, get back on thing. At least Freakin was able to convince De Laurentiis to do Rampage, which was very unpleasant material. And uh, you know, so let's yeah, let's be fa- let's thankful because I know he produced a bunch of crap, but he also the ones that scored scored you know you know scored Blue Velvet, Manhunter, uh, The Bedroom Window. I mean, there's some some damn good pictures in there. Yeah, yeah, a lot of them. And uh, I think just um, back to Freakin, I think that even his films that weren't great were still watchable just just because of, you know, what a great uh, filmmaker he was. Um, So even the ones that you're like, ugh, at least at least there there is still, you know, some charm to them. So they're not all total total losses, but definitely. (laughs) You might think otherwise if you sit through the Guardian. Yeah, yeah, I think I think. I think I'm gonna think I'm gonna leave that one alone. I think I, 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 Evil Tree. I think M Night Shyamalan's already proven you can't make trees scary, so I don't think even Freakin can pull that off. So yeah, I'll... and cruising and deal the center. I think really talented directors like William Freakin. They make a film that's either very good or very bad. They don't really have a middle ground, and that's just comes with being very talented. Yeah, and and having a particular point of view that you don't want to compromise. That you you know there was never a movie by committee thing with freaking is either his way or it wasn't going to go anyway, and uh, that's you know what gave him his notoriety. It's also what gave him you know kind of some rough patches. But at the end of the day, what we're looking at here is a body of work that's pretty interesting, pretty compelling, and and a, a filmmaker who you know has a very singular style that nobody really has has tapped into before. No, no, and hopefully they'll teach us. Hopefully they're teaching us stuff in film schools. I mean, we went to film school. What was it? It was always Citizen Kane, and you know Orson Welles. All this, all this unsurprising stuff they were teaching when they would be best to be showing William Friedkin films as well. Yeah, yeah, especially for you know low budget filmmaking. It's a, it's a. It's a, a masterclass in how to get a lot for, you know, for films that were, you know, modestly budgeted. Yeah, and one more thing to note, actually, okay, uh, he only did, his career spanned a while, and yet I, if you if you don't count his TV, the films he did for TV, and he only did 18 films in his career. Yeah, that's not a lot for how long he was alive. Well, so it means he was choosing. You know, it means he or, or well, I don't know. Maybe he's choosing, or maybe after those box office bombs, he didn't get that many scripts, and maybe he got burnt out or something. But eighteen, considering you know, how long he worked, I was surprised that was only eighteen. But I went back and said, yeah, yeah, that's pretty much he. He was not a guy who did a film every year. Did you watch that documentary that I mentioned a while ago? Have you ever seen that? I'd seen it years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I'd, it, seen, I'd, I'd seen it a while back. Yeah, he he he's freaking was always interesting in interviews. He always wore that kind of that same kind of director's jacket that Brian De Palma mm-hmm. kind of wears. You know what I'm talking about? So yeah, and uh, uh, I haven't got I haven't dove I haven't dove I haven't dove into the dived into the uh, special features on the uh, Kino Blu-ray, but I'm sure there's there is that. There, there is going to be that interview and that scene. You do know the scene of that reshot ending that couldn't possibly use. Did you? It's available 
in the special features, it's basically it's this big old panning shot where Bukovic and Chance have been re- they've been demoted to uh, this. Uh, it's up in a mountain somewhere, practically in Anchorage, Alaska, chasing, uh, being assigned there for uh, counterfeit, which of course in Alaska. Would anything, and there's not a single mark on Peterson's face. There's not a single scar, nothing. There's, I mean, his face is perfect. That's why Freakin did it that way because he knew it could possibly be used. Being that he got, the character was shotgunned in the face. <laughs> I mean, it was just so utterly stupid. So he he was pretty. I, I credit him for that, you know. I'm sure they say, okay, yeah, he'll give us the ending we want. And they see it and they go, oh, God, there's no freaking way we could use this. Yeah, I mean, it's the question is, if they had, if they used it like that, would the film have been remembered the way it was? Or was it the fact that the way it was is why the film was remembered, which is the fact that it had a very unusual ending that really kind of threw everything on its ear. So I think that's uh, that's one of those things where it's like, it may not, it may not get the acclaim it, it deserved at the beginning, but I think it's definitely become a cult film on its own right now that a lot of freaking fans will say it's one of his best, and it is, for sure. Well, what, one, one critic who hated it, I think from Time Magazine, he nicknamed it Miami Vile. <laughs> he, was, he was totally... I mean, when Peterson's character gets an FBI agent killed, you know, he, he does, it doesn't affect him in the least. He just said, hey, what do you want me to do about it? And go back to Gene Hackman in, in uh, French Connection. Remember, he winds up accidentally shooting that FBI agent, and he doesn't stop and uh, mourn the guy. He keeps going after the Frenchman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like, forget that. I'm, I'm onto the, yeah. Um, and definitely, I mean, shot a guy in the back. It's like, it's, it's like, you know, in the French Connection, it's like, it's not a, it's not a, uh, virtuous character here. This is somebody who is going to, you know, do what he wants, get what he wants, and will do every dirty trick, whatever it takes to, to, to take down his target. And, uh, you never would have seen a film like that before where the, the leading man shoots the bad guy in the back. It never would have done that. That was very, very unusual, even though in real life, that's usually how it would have to happen to stop somebody. Popeye also did the Popeye character. Didn't he do that with the Frenchman in French Connection too? He also shot him in the back when he was sailing away. Correct. That's how I remember it. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think you're right. Because he shoots him on the dock. He's uh, the Frenchman's getting away on the boat, but he is Popeye's on the dock, and I do believe yes, he shoots him in the back in that film too. So. Yeah, I mean, how many? Not many actors would play a character like that. But Gene Ackman, you know, never cared about how you know about his image. You know, like Robert Redford or Steve McQueen. You know, he never gave a damn. He he was willing to come across as, and so was William Peterson. I mean, this was his first major role. Many actors would want to protect themselves. You know, they'd want to come off as to the audience as as they can. And Peterson just felt fell right into that he just you know he was willing to play this complete sop and his girlfriend there she asked what, what, what would you do if i stopped giving you information he said i'd have your parole revoked yeah and he plain and simple there's no soft telling he just says i'd have it revoked and he's sleeping with her we should also mentioning french connection uh, one last thing i i would say is uh, uh you know they made a really ill-advised TV movie that was going to be a TV show, I guess, about about the character Popeye Doyle played by Ed O'Neill. If you remember that or uh, not, yes, I do. It's terrible, and uh, I mean, Ed, how, Ed, did, Ed, it, did it? How many, how many episodes was it? I think it, it was didn't just, last. I think it was just the pilot. I don't think it went past the pilot. I think. Oh, it, you're right. You're right. A pilot. Okay, a pilot. You're right. Oh my God, what were they thinking? Yeah, I mean, like you know, no, no offense to Ed O'Neill, but. You know, he's no he's no Gene Hackman. That's just well, yeah, that's not a TV safe character. Yeah, they tried to make it that way, and it was just like every other bad '80s cop show, you know, yeah. like like Hunter or something crappy like that. But yeah, I think we did a pretty deep dive into freaking. Um, everybody out there who's been interested in what we we're talking about, you should definitely check out those films, the documentary, and. Uh, 
check out the 4K Exodus whenever it comes out later this year, and maybe we'll all get a chance to see his last film sometime in the next few months. Yeah, yeah, here's hoping and hopes, uh, yeah, absolutely. So, well, Michael, it's been great talking to you. Yeah, it's been too long. We'll have to do this again. Let's do this again sometime. Let's uh, let's tackle some other films coming out and let's uh, let's make this Yeah, I, I guess we will. I don't go to the theater very hard. I haven't been to the theater since Cocaine Bear. No, I, I saw that too. I saw that too. <laughs> That's the last time I did to the theater. I just I can't take it. I can't take audiences being loud and rude and cell phones and kids crying and all that. I, but with Cocaine Bear, my God, you had to go to the theater to see it. Turns out it was a terrible movie. There was not nearly enough of the bear. No, all these boring talking head scenes, and I was just like. My God, I wanted a guilty pleasure, and you seventy five seventy five percent of it was dialogue. Yeah, it, it, had, it had its moments, but nothing nothing memorable. Nothing when not when not, not when I would watch again. It just it's it's just not enough not okay. enough not enough there. Well, let's not have let's uh, let's uh, yeah, we'll talk again. Hopefully, it won't be over. No, hopefully, it'll be a while for another famed director. Uh, you know, passes away. So, but he lived a good life, Michael. He was 78. He, he spent his life doing what he loved. I mean, he, he, I mean, how many people can say that and got rich at it too? I mean, how many people can say that where they, they lived their lives doing what they loved and they got paid really well and they were well respected. in the industry. So I think he had a very good life. Yeah. Yeah. I think if, you know, as far as careers go, ups and downs, I think the ups outweighed the downs, and that's why we're talking about him right now. Otherwise, he would have been forgotten. Absolutely. All right. Well, I will talk to you later. All right, Jack. Thanks a lot. This was fun. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.